Take your Bibles, if you would please, this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> if you're a guest of ours this morning, we have been journeying uh, through the little epistle <clears throat> of 1 Peter, five chapters. It's a letter in your New Testament that comes near the end of the Bible. And so I want to invite you to find chapter 5 with me this morning. And we're going to be speaking on the subject matter, relationships matter. Uh, now, as we have been going through 1 Peter, we see that it is a letter written to saints who are living in a world that is upside down, much like our world today. And Peter is admonishing believers to live as strangers and pilgrims. We are not to blend in to this culture. God has saved us to be different. He has saved us to be salt and light. And as we are salt and light, Peter has been assuring us we will be opposed for our faith. We will face opposition and persecution but he's admonishing the saints that we are to stand strong and we're to glorify God. And through all of our trials and tribulations, God's got a purpose. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. Christ suffered. In his suffering, he redeemed us. He died for us on the cross. If we follow him, we will suffer. But God has a purpose in our sufferings to conform us to his image to make us more like Jesus, to grow us in our faith. Now this morning, I need to let you know that in the first segment of this message, in the major segment, Peter is talking to me, okay? He's talking to shepherds. You may say, well, Scott just preached the first four verses to yourself. Uh, in, 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 in the mirror and, and get on with verses 5 and, and we can get out of here earlier if you just pick up in verse 5 and forget about verses 1 through 4. But we're not going to do that because we walk through the scripture a verse at a time and I want you to see what the scripture says about me. Okay? So would you stand for the reading of God's word please? In verse 1 he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you and not for shameful gain but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you again for this letter that is included in the canon of Scripture. It is your inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And thank you for the encouraging message of this letter. God, as we wrap this series up on 1 Peter, may we live it out in our daily lives that we are to be different. We are to exemplify Christ in all that we do. I pray that we would be found faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading a few passages to you out of various places in the Scripture. And let me say that the passages that I read are, are in no certain order, just random passages that I've picked out. But... I'm going to tie them all together and I want you to see the common theme that has to do with our passage this morning. First of all, from Luke chapter 6, it says, In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And then over in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now that's a radical thought, isn't it? More significant. Consider others not equal to yourself, but more significant. Than yourselves. He goes on to say, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In 1 Timothy 5, uh, Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity, honor widows who are truly widows. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then one last one from John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What do you hear in all of those passages? I hear several things. I hear that people are important to God. Leadership is important to God. Relationships are important to God. The gospel travels along the pathway of relationships. As the gospel is preached, relationships are formed. Relationships, first of all, with God through Christ, and then relationships in a body of Christ with one another as we help one another and encourage one another. Relationships. And so Peter ends his letter here talking about relationships. First of all, the relationship that a shepherd or a pastor has to God's flock. And then the relationship that God's flock has to him and the relationship we have with one another. And he even talks in chapter 5 about the relationship that we have to the evil one, how we are to resist him. Ladies and gentlemen, relationships matter. We're going to talk about relationships at different levels this morning. And there's something for everybody in this passage. First of all, I want you to notice with me this morning that leaders are to shepherd God's flock. He says, beginning there in verse 1, So I exhort elders among you as, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. First of all, I want you to see how Peter does not address this situation. As he's speaking to fellow pastors, he does not try to pull rank. He doesn't say to shepherds, hey, by the way... I'm an apostle and you're not. I'm one of the twelve. He could have said that. He could have said, not only am I one of the twelve, but I was also in the inner circle of disciples. I was one of the three along with Peter. I mean, along with James and John. There were the three of us. And Jesus carried the three of us up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He could have boasted about his position, but he didn't. He said, I, I'm a fellow pastor, and I am appealing to you as pastors. There's humility here. There's a camaraderie that he's appealing to in the gospel. The work that we do as we labor in God's field. And he identifies himself as somebody also who is a fellow sufferer. He's not riding out of some ivory palace. Some ivory tower 
where he is now exempt from all these other things that pastors may go through out in the real world. He's one of them. In fact, church history and tradition tells us that Nero, the emperor at the time that he's writing this, Nero is about to have Peter executed. We're told that Peter was crucified. He was crucified upside down because when it came time for his crucifixion, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified with my Lord. Crucify me upside down. And so that's what they did. So he's a fellow pastor and a fellow sufferer together with the rest of the pastors in this journey. He's been telling them and he's been telling the church that if we all follow Christ, we're going to experience suffering, but suffering does not have the last say-so in the life of a believer. Because as the Bible says, if we have died with Christ, we shall also live with Christ. So in verse 1, Peter points out that he will also share in the glory that is to come. Not only is he a fellow traveler on this hard road of suffering, but he is also a fellow participant in the glory that is to come. Then he comes to his appeal, and it's a command. And it actually shows up in verse 2. Look at what he tells pastors. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God. Now given the context of persecution in this letter, a pastor might be tempted to shrink back and run and hide and protect himself, but he won't do that if he's a true shepherd. So Peter is saying to pastors, you stay in the trenches no matter how tough it gets, no matter how bad it gets in the the world, you stay in the trenches and you shepherd God's flock and you feed them. Remain true to your calling. Now there are a number of words here that refer to the office of a pastor. He uses the word shepherd, which is the word for pastor. The word is uh, poimane. Then he also addresses them as elders. The word is presbyteros. And then he also uses the word episkopos, meaning a bishop or an overseer. Now Baptists believe that the New Testament is using all of these words interchangeably. Now, I mention that because sometimes people come to us out of other church traditions where they have elders and overseers and bishops and just kind of a chain of different uh, people who serve in the church and and they ask us about that and, and say, why don't you have all those positions? Well, we do. We just believe that the Bible is using those terms interchangeably to talk about the role of the pastor. In defense of that would be Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come and meet him. He wants to pray with them and give them a charge to be, to be faithful. And, and just like Peter saying, shepherd God's flock and not shrink back. And so he calls for the elders and he says, I want you to shepherd or pastor the flock over which God has made you an overseer or a bishop. And so 
In that one passage, Paul uses all the terms interchangeably, talking about one group of men. And then in 1 Timothy 3, where qualifications of a pastor are given, there's only two offices mentioned there, the, pastor of, uh, the, the office of pastor and deacon. And then writing to the Philippians, Paul says in Philippians 1.1, I'm writing to all of the saints and the whole entire church. And oh, by the way, not only am I writing to you and greeting you, but I'm also sending my greetings to the bishops and the deacons. So again, we believe the word shepherd in the scripture, the word for pastor, the word for elder, the word for bishop or overseer, it's all referring to the same thing. At any rate, Peter admonishes this group of men to be diligent in how they shepherd the flock of God. All of us as human beings, pastors included, are compared to sheep in the scripture. And folks, I want to tell you, that's not always a very complimentary picture. Philip Keller, who wrote a book entitled A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, said, The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require, more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. For example, many animals have an uncanny instinct to be able to find their way back home, but not sheep. Left to their own, they just keep wandering away and getting lost. They have to have help finding food and water. They cannot defend themselves and so they need constant protection. They will not eat just healthy plants, but they will turn and they will begin to eat things that are poisonous. They cannot clean themselves if they're not cleaned and sheared. Things can happen to them that will literally put their very life in danger. It's no coincidence that the Bible compares you and me to sheep. The prophet Isaiah said, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. In Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the masses of people coming out to them, he looked at them with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Pastors are to shepherd God's flock. We're to feed the flock and take care of the flock. We need to remember again what Jesus said to Simon Peter. Simon, do you love me? If you love me, feed my sheep. Pastors are to feed the sheep. We are to give God's word. Folks, if we had time this morning to go through all the passages that deal with the work of a pastor, the primary thing a shepherd is to do is to feed the flock of God, God's Word. Because you see, we live in a world that does not appreciate God's truth. But we serve a God who has revealed Himself. God is not silent. God has spoken. God has given us his written word and his living word and it is the role of a pastor to stand up before a group of people and say, thus saith the Lord, and to teach the word of God. That's the primary role of a pastor. To feed the sheep of God, his flock. 
and then also to give pastoral care. Sadly, we live in a day where the business model, about the last 25 or 30 years of the ministry, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the business model has taken over the ministry, the business model of the CEO. And books are being written about pastors being leaders in, in that sense. So many pastors today have very little training in either theology or in the scriptures. But because they were a good manager and whatever they did, they were a good leader, they now occupy the place of a pastor. Many of them, trust me, I, I run in circles with many of these guys, with pastor friends, and so many of them do not even have any desire whatsoever for intensive study of the scripture or theology. How can you feed the flock of God if you don't feed yourself? And it may surprise lay people to find out something about pastors. Many pastors do not even enjoy being around people. I'm serious. They'll tell you the ministry's great. I love what I do, but I just don't like the people or I don't like being around the people. I'm serious. If you could take an anonymous, an anonymous survey of pastors in this area, in Concord and Charlotte, and, and, and they wouldn't be found out, they'd be anonymous, probably the majority of them would tell you that they don't really enjoy being around people. They enjoy their task, but they don't enjoy people now folks that blows my mind the very word shepherd what does that imply if you're a pastor, if you're in the ministry, you need to have a love for God's Word. You need to have a love for theology because, again, it is God's inspired and errant Word that He has given us. And it is my job, it's pastor's job, to pass that truth along to you. And as shepherds, we need to be a part of your life and you a part of our lives. We've got to know one another as a sheep and shepherd. It goes with the task. Now, leading and management skills are important. I'm not discounting that. That's certainly a major part of being a pastor, but not to the point that feeding the flock suffers. You may recall what the apostle said in Acts chapter 6 when that first group of deacons was formed and they got together to take care of many of the benevolent needs in the church because the apostle said, we've got to continue to put a priority on the preaching of the word of God and on prayer. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Again, Jesus said to Simon Peter, feed my sheep. I appreciate the time that you give me to study God's word for messages. Some weeks, not every week, some weeks I preach uh, four different times. Because I do a service on Wednesday morning also for Taylor Glenn. It takes time. I appreciate that time you give me to feed myself so I can turn around and feed God's people. 
And then Peter moves on. He says here exercising oversight. We're to give care and direction to God's people. One of the things that I greatly desire to start doing soon, and I've talked to the staff about this, and, and it's something we can't force, we can't demand, we can't make it happen if you don't agree or you don't want it to happen. But I don't know if you've read anything about uh, Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher Richard Baxter. He's got a book out called The Reformed Pastor, and it's on his life and ministry. Richard Baxter lived in a, it was a different age. Again, he was a Puritan, but in his congregation, it was required that every family and every member in the church periodically had to meet with him. Now, the purpose of the meeting was so he could encourage that family and say, where are you hurting? Where do you need guidance? What questions do you have? How can I, as your pastor, lead you? How can I shepherd you? What do you need me to do to help your family? How can I pray for you? What would you like to know about me? I want us to start doing that with as many people as will meet with us. Again, just so that I get to know you better and you get to know me better. Now, I'm only one person. I've asked the two Kevins to help me with this. We want to shepherd the flock of God. It's God's flock and we want to know you and you to know us. One of the aspects of modern day ministry in larger churches that I, I dislike greatly is where you're not even able to talk to the pastor. There's layers built in, and if you try to get to him, you can't. To me, that goes against everything the Bible talks about, the shepherding role. Notice what Peter says, shepherd God's flock. It's God's flock. I meet with pastors a lot, and I hear pastors say, and I know what they're saying. They don't mean it wrong, but I hear some men say, uh, my deacons, you know what, I need to do this with, my, I need to get my deacons doing this or, or my church or my finance committee. Folks, it's not ours. It's, it's God's flock. We're under shepherds in God's flock. And that ought to say something to ministers about the importance of our stewardship. It's God's flock. I'm an under shepherd in His flock. That kicks up the importance of it and the sacredness of it. Peter says exercise oversight. One of the things that I'm to do is to do that. And here's where pastors will tell you we walk such a tight wire because if we exercise oversight, some people will say he's too controlling. And so you back off and then they say he's too passive. We need some leadership. Pastors will say this is kind of an area where, where it's a no-win situation. People expect different things. Peter goes on to say some things that pastors need to hear so that we will maintain the proper balance. We don't do it because we have to, but because we want to. And we're to carry it out in such a way to do God's will. Not our will, but God's will. These bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Every pastor, every member of the church, every pastor needs to live with that mentality. What is God's will? 
Folks, that's what matters to us as a family of believers here at Pitts Baptist Church. It's not what you want. It's not what I want. It's what God wants. What is God's will for us? That's what matters. What is God's will? And we're to lead with that aim in sight that we're trying to lead the church to do God's will. We're not men pleasers. Some people want that. And some try to walk that tight wire. You can't be a man pleaser even if you wanted to because different groups of people want different things. You can't please everybody. And so a minister has to say, I need to follow God and please Him. God's will, that's what matters. And Peter points out we don't do it for shameful gain. The Bible points out in 1 Timothy 5 that pastors are to be compensated and those that work at teaching are even worthy of double honor. Paul is speaking there about wages. He goes on to clarify that in the next verse. Hey, I like that. A teaching pastor is worthy of double pay. <laughs> now that sounds pretty good. Seriously, I think this is an area pits can be commended for. You take care of your staff. You don't muzzle the ox as he treads out the grain, to use the analogy there in 1 Timothy 5. You don't starve us, in other words, while we do the ministry. And so congregations are admonished to take care of their shepherds. But you'll notice shepherds are admonished here that exorbitant gain had better not be your motive. Again, an area that concerns me today. The new trend among mega churches. In mega churches, pastors... They get a board and that board will be other ministers across the nation. It won't even be people in their church. It's other ministers and they sit on their boards. And, and, and I'm on your board and I tell your church what your salary is supposed to be. And then you tell my church what my salary is supposed to be. Pastors sitting on one another's boards and dictating salary. Folks, that happens that happens right here in this area, not very far away. In fact, quarter of a mile down the road. That's the model now in some churches. An unbiblical model. And I hope it's being done honestly, but the system, the way some are setting it up, it's a system that invites greed and sordid gain and Peter is saying a pastor's motive had better not be sordid uh, gain it better not be greed it better not be money he's doing what he's doing yes his church is supporting him that's God's will but he's not doing it for money he's doing it because God's called him to be a shepherd of his flock that's the motive for the ministry he goes on to say, not lording it over them. We're servant leaders. Again, we give oversight, but we're to do it in the right spirit with the servant's heart. We're examples. We're not perfect. Peter's writing this letter. He wasn't perfect. What did Peter do? He denied Christ three times, but Christ restored him when he repented. Not perfect, but examples to the flock. 
Leaders are to shepherd God's flock. Secondly, though, I want you to see that God's people are to show humility to one another. Pick up reading with me in verse 5. He says, Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety anxieties on him because he cares for you. You'll notice here that Peter first addresses the younger members of the congregation and how they are to submit to their spiritual leaders. Why did Peter specifically carve out younger members to address? Perhaps because if, as some have suggested, there just seems to be a tendency on the part of all of us when we're younger that we kind of want to go our own way and carve out our own path. Regardless of how old you may be now, admit it. Senior citizens, admit, all of us admit it. When we were all younger, what did we oftentimes want to do? We wanted to go our own way and do our own thing. All of us. Let's be honest. There's something in us. We start kind of wanting to find our way. But the Bible consistently says, regardless of that, we need to respect not only our parents, but our elders. Who are the elders in verse 5? Commentators say it's the same group he's been talking about. He hasn't changed who the elders are. He's not just talking about older people in general. He's still talking about the same group he was talking about in verse 1 through 4. Just like a younger person has elders all through their life, teachers, bosses, they also have elders at church. Now, one of the better commentators on 1 Peter, if you're looking for a good commentary on 1 Peter, now it's, it's technical in places. Karen Jobes, the Baker Academic Series, her commentary on 1 Peter, excellent. One of the better ones today. She makes the point too about younger members. What's going on here in the context of 1 Peter. Christians were beginning to move around. They were beginning to be displaced because of persecution that was breaking out. And so just as they were getting going in one area with the church, they might, they might be displaced, go to another area. They're in Asia Minor where, where Peter's writing to this, this audience. They go to another area trying to get away from some of the hardships in one area, go to another. Uh, they become a part of a new church start and a new group of elders. And in that new group of elders, they might be thinking, you know, they're not quite like my old group uh, elders and my old pastor. I kind of like that. But and what Peter is saying, you need to live with who you got, with who God's placed as your pastor. Instead of dreaming for the pastor that you don't have, pray for the one that you do have. Respect your elders. But then notice what he does. He broadens this thought out to, to everybody in the church. 
Not just young people. Everybody. He's saying we're to be in subjection to one another. We're to be humble to one another. He's talking here about the whole entire church family. And Peter gives the motivation behind this. It's because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know what Peter could have done here? Listen to me a minute. He could have appealed simply to decorum. Show humility to one another because it's, it's the nice thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Things will run better if we do that. If we show humility to one another. An appeal to Simple decorum. He doesn't do that. He uses the strongest motivation possible when he tells us to humble ourselves to one another. The motivation he gives us is God. He's telling us to do this because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and the tenses are very significant here. God continually opposes the proud. And He continually shows grace to the humble. And that's why we're to be in subjection one to another. And then He says we're to clothe ourselves with humility. The phrase clothe yourself is a word in the Greek that referred to a slave who would put on an apron in order to serve. You know what I think Peter might have had in mind? He might have had in mind that scene in John 13 when Jesus took a towel, girded it about His waist, and He knelt and He washed the disciples' feet. Peter is saying, you and I need to clothe ourselves with humility. We need to take the posture of a servant who takes on the servant's apron. We need to wear that, so to speak. And we need to serve one another in humility. I mentioned Philippians 2 a moment ago where Paul said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And Paul goes on in that passage to give the example of Jesus. We need to have the mind of Christ because Christ left the ivory palaces of heaven to come to a sin-sick world to die for us. Now, folks, that's humility. He had it all. Think of what the second member of the Trinity, what he enjoyed in his pre-incarnate state, all of that glory and that that worship of the angels. He laid all of that aside. He didn't lay aside his glory or his essence, who he was, but he laid aside that pre-incarnate glory and worship by the angels. And he came in the incarnation, a babe born in a manger, to end up going to a cross and dying for us. You want to talk about humility and looking after others and being a servant? That's, that's the greatest example of all. And so in the church, you and I need to have the mind of Christ as we relate to one another. We're to show humility to one another. And then lastly, 
God's people are to show humility towards God. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. God has authority over you and me. He made us. He redeemed us. If you're saved, if you're in Christ, if you're born again, He, may, he redeemed you. Scripture says you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to God. And He has authority over you. Peter gives three admonitions here, three imperatives. We have only got time to cover the first. But his first admonition in this last section of, of chapter 5. Humble yourself, verse 6. It's an imperative. Be sober-minded or clear-minded. It's another imperative in verse 8. And then verse 9, the third imperative, resist Satan. Again, the first one is what I want us to deal with. Humble yourself before God. Because He has the strength to help you. Peter refers here to the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is a phrase that shows up often in the Old Testament and it refers to two things, discipline and deliverance. It's used in the book of Exodus about when God disciplined Pharaoh and the Egyptians. His mighty hand was on Pharaoh as he brought all of those plagues on the Egyptians. All those plagues were a display of God's mighty hand. And then referring to the same Exodus event, His mighty hand was displayed towards the Hebrews in delivering them, taking them out of the land of bondage. And Peter is saying to the church that same mighty hand of God that you read about in the Old Testament. That same mighty hand of God is available to you today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God who redeems His people. And he goes on here to give a promise. He says, He will exalt you in the proper time. In the proper time. If you're suffering, which is the theme of 1 Peter, you put yourself into God's hands. You humble yourself before God. And God will take care of you in the right way at the right time. But what you're to do is humble yourself before God. Does that fit anybody in here this morning? Are you going through a trial or a tribulation in your life? Are you going through some hardship in your life? Maybe you're going through opposition for your faith at school or work. Is anybody facing a valley? Anybody? Sure, all over the place. He says, humble yourself. Put yourself into the hands of God. 
Trust God. Life is hard, but keep trusting God. Don't get bitter in life. Don't be disappointed with God. Instead, humble yourself before God. He's sovereign, and think about it. There's nothing that happens in your life or my life that hasn't, first of all, been sifted through His loving fingers. Whatever you encounter in life, He's allowed for a reason. Folks, we don't always see right now what that reason is. We don't. We don't always see. But we can trust the sovereignty of God, the, the providential care of God. The Scripture promises us that in the lives of those who belong to Him, Romans eight twenty eight, He works all things together for the good of those who love Him. I've told you before, that verse is not saying everything is good. Because there are sinful things in the world, there's evil things in the world. But what Romans 8.28 is saying is God is sovereign. So in the life of one of his children, even bad things, even evil things, even sinful things, God is able to use all things in your life together for good to those who love him. The classic example is Joseph, despised by his brothers, falsely accused, thrown in prison. But in the end, look at what God did in Joseph's life. Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God used for good. We don't know why we go through some of the trials we do. But what Peter is saying you do need to do is humble yourself before God. Put your life in His hands and He'll deal with it in the proper way in the proper time. And then notice what he goes on to say. He says, casting all your anxiety upon Him. Now folks, I wish the NIV would not have done what they do right here. The NIV is a very good translation, okay? I love to read the NIV. But for some reason, they put a period between verse 6 and 7. There's not a period. By putting a period there and beginning verse 7 as a new sentence, they make cast the main verb as though it's some separate thought. But cast isn't a verb. Cast is a participle that goes with the imperative that's in verse 6. What I'm saying is, verse 6, you do verse 6 by doing verse 7. You humble yourself before God by casting all your anxieties upon Him. It's not the attitude that says, I can do everything myself, I'll, I'll handle it just fine, God. No, it is the thought, God, I'm nothing without you. I can do nothing without you. I need you for the very next breath I take. And so I'm casting all of my anxieties, all of my worries, all of my trials. I'm rolling those over onto you. I'm casting all of those over onto you. And that is showing my humility to God that I am trying to live a life by faith every day in humble dependence upon Him. And the word Peter uses, casting, is the very same word that was used of the crowd on, on that first Palm Sunday 
when they were taking off their outer garments and they were casting their outer garments in the pathway of Jesus as he rode that donkey into town, they were, ca- they were taking off the garments and casting them in his path. Which was a symbol, by the way, of, yes, Lord, come, rule over me. I'm casting my garments before you. Same word Peter uses. He's saying all those worries, all those cares like an outer garment, you take them off and you throw them before God. You throw them at His feet. Cast all your cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for you. And hasn't He already proven His care? The Bible says in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He cares for you. Church, He cares for you. Young person, He cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on Him. He cares for you. And He's able to work in your life in ways that you can't even see. In closing, listen to this true story. It illustrates how God is at work in a believer's life even when we don't see it. Listen to what she says. Consumed by my loss, I didn't notice the hardness of the pew where I sat. I was at the funeral of my dearest friend, my mother, She had finally lost her long battle with cancer. The hurt was so intense I found it hard to breathe at times. Always supportive, mother clapped the loudest at my school plays. Held a box of tissues while listening to my first heartbreak. Comforted me at my father's death. Encouraged me in college and prayed for me my entire life. When mother's illness was diagnosed, my sister had a new baby and and my brother had recently married his childhood sweetheart. So it fell on me, the 27-year-old middle child without entanglements to take care of her. And I considered it an honor. But what now, Lord? My life stretched out before me as an empty abyss as I sat there in the church that day. My brother sat stoically with his face toward the cross while clutching his wife's hand. My sister sat slumped against her husband's shoulder, his arms around her as she cradled their child. All so deeply grieving, no one noticed that I sat there all alone. My place had been with our mother preparing her meals, helping her walk, taking her to the doctor, seeing to her medications, reading the Bible together. Now she was with the Lord. My work was finished and I was alone. I heard a door open and slam shut at the back of the church. Quick footsteps hurried along the carpeted floor. An exasperated young man looked around briefly and then sat next to me. He folded his hands and placed them on his lap. His eyes were brimming with tears. He began to sniffle. I'm late, he explained, though no explanation was necessary. After several eulogies, he leaned over and commented, Why do they keep calling Mary by the name Margaret? Margaret. 
because that was her name. Margaret, never Mary. No one called her Mary, I whispered. And I wondered why this person couldn't have sat on the other side of the church. He interrupted my grieving with his fidgeting. Who was this stranger anyway? No, that isn't correct, he insisted. Her name is Mary, Mary Peters. I said, sir, that's not who this is. Isn't this the Lutheran church? He said, no, the Lutheran church is across the street. Oh, I believe you're at the wrong funeral. Funeral. The solemnness, of the solemnness of the occasion mixed with this blunder made me burst out in laughter. I cupped my hands over my face, hoping it would be interrupted or interpreted rather as sobs. Sharp looks from other mourners only made the situation seem more hilarious. I peeked at the bewildered, misguided man seated next to me. He was laughing too as he glanced around and determined that it was too late for a graceful exit. At the final amen, we darted out the door into the parking lot. I do believe we'll be the talk of the town now. He asked me out for a cup of coffee. That afternoon began a lifelong journey for me with the man who attended the wrong funeral but was in the right place. A year after our meeting, we were married at a country church where he was the assistant pastor. This time, we both arrived at the same church right on time. In my sorrow, God gave me laughter. In my loneliness, God gave me love. This past June, we celebrated our 22nd wedding anniversary. When it, whenever anyone asks us how we met, Rick tells them, her mother, Margaret, and my Aunt Mary introduced us, and it's truly a match made in heaven. <laughs> Coincidence? I don't think so. Whatever you're going through, cast all your cares on Him. He cares for you. And if you're His child through faith in Jesus Christ, He's working in your life in ways through your circumstance that you may not see and you may not understand, but He's got a grand plan. Humble yourself under His mighty hand. Would you stand please? Maybe this morning you're going through cares and anxieties. And that thought of the garment casting them before the Lord, that's what you need to do with those cares and anxieties. Cast that before the Lord because He cares for you. And He's got the power to do something about it. Are you humbling yourself before one another? Serving one another, counting one another is more important than yourselves? What's your attitude towards one another? Do you pray for us as spiritual leaders? 
And when he says to spiritual leaders, you're to do it eagerly, willingly, seeking the will of God, is, is that how all of us serve the Lord? Serving Him willingly, eagerly, with the right attitude. Does that explain you this morning? If not, that's an opportunity for repentance.